Reflections on Flannery O'Connor's short story, The Displaced Person, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 1. Babette's feast was the anatomy of a sacrament. And the striking features in Babette's feast, which are shared uh, with the Flannery O'Connor story, uh, the displaced person, are these. There's slight variations, of course, in the two stories. But remember that in Babette's Feast, particularly the film version of Babette's Feast, the first uh, symbol that we are drawn to is the split fish, a commentary on the, on the condition of, of uh, the Christian movement at the beginning of this story in this little Norwegian hamlet. Uh, split cod hanging out on the line to dry in the sun. And then Babette's Feast has two extraordinary and extraordinarily selfless women at the center of it. And around them is a small circle of people who are xenophobic by habit, if not by constitution. And this small circle of people could go either way. When I say could go either way, I mean the... uh, under certain circumstances, the social drift in this little Norwegian community could easily have gone in the direction of sacrifice. But under the influence of Babette, it went in the direction of sacrament. Remember that when the dean uh, took his first look at a live Roman Catholic, uh, there, was a, uh, there, there was some emphasis on the word live Roman Catholic, as <laughs> though uh, so it could go the other way. Uh, so... Uh, uh, and then into this uh, situation comes a refugee from history. That's how I would like to characterize Babette and her counterpart in the Flannery O'Connor story. A refugee from history, someone who has been caught up in the uh, in the turmoil and, and suffering and confusion and pain, so on, of a, of a historical uh, <coughs> spasm, and has fled that and ended up on the Norwegian coast. So a symbol for the church, the split cod, Two extraordinarily selfless women, a small circle of uh, habitually xenophobic people, and and this refugee from history, Babette. In Flannery O'Connor's Displaced Persons, there is the peacock, which corresponds symbolically to the split fish hanging on the line. There are a number of references throughout this story to this peacock, and it it uh, it represents, if you will, I mean, it it has it it has. Uh, it's polyvalent uh, symbolically, uh, but clearly it has reference to uh, the spirit of the Christian movement and uh, the incarnation and the mystery of the incarnation and uh, the Christ's likeness and so on and so forth. Uh, so there is the peacock that we're introduced now in the film Babette's Feast. Uh, we get a, a look at the split cod immediately. In the story, Babette's Feast, the, the short story, the split cod comes a little bit later. In the short story, Displaced Persons, O'Connor's short story, the first noun in the story is peacock. And, uh, one, of the, and the very, one of the very last references in the story is to the peacock. So it's, uh, it goes throughout the story. In Flannery O'Connor's short story, there are two women, extraordinary women in their own way, but not extraordinarily selfless as the... Norwegian women were, but extraordinarily willful women. And they are uh, situated in the midst of a small circle of people who are xenophobic by habit and who could go either way. Under the proper circumstances, one would imagine it could easily have gone, not easily perhaps, it, it only easily goes in the direction of sacrifice, but it could have gone in the direction of sacrament, but it goes in the direction of sacrifice. So, uh, Flannery O'Connor's story is the anatomy of a sacrifice. Into this social environment comes a refugee from history. Uh, Not like Babette, a refugee from uh, one of the aftershocks of the French Revolution, but someone who is coming from the death camps in Poland uh, at at the end of World War II. Now, Babette was uh, a case of still waters running deep. And the sisters, in whose 
homes she lived were uh, ones who lived lives of quiet self-surrender, self-sacrifice, self-giving. And what they shared, they didn't share a whole lot at first, but what I think both the sisters, uh, what the sisters and Babette share with each other is that they have identities that are not predominantly derived from the social order. And therefore, they're not as easily scandalized, that is to say, drawn into the social melodrama. Uh, the social order giveth and the social order taketh away. And if we draw our identities from the social order, then we become extremely suspicious of, uh, uh, it, to the extent that we have found an accommodation with the social order, a, a sense of identity that moral, is more or less tolerable for ourselves and more or less acceptable to our community, then we become, uh, we become edgy about alterations in the social order because it might upset the delicate balance that we've managed to strike with the social order. Well, certainly in contrast to the, the two major women in Flannery O'Connor's story, uh, Babette and the two sisters uh, are considerably less uh, indebted to the, to the social arrangement for their sense of who they are. The two women in the O'Connor story have neither the depth nor the selflessness of Babette and, and the two sisters. And they are incessantly being scandalized. It means a stumbling block, but a scandal is something that trips us up, pushes our buttons, draws us into some kind of uh, melodrama, some kind of sociodrama uh, in, in, the, in, in the apparent uh, heat of which uh, the great issues of life are, are completely eclipsed. And so we get caught up in that. Well, the two, the two women and, and, and others in the Flannery O'Connor story are incessantly being scandalized and in turn scandalizing others. It's a, it's a kind of uh, uh, in, in, a mimetic vortex into which they're constantly drawing each other. They live and breathe and have their non-being in mimetic entanglements. Uh, life is a soap opera. The sisters in Babette's Feast, on the other hand, know who they are. Now, it's not entirely true that their identity is, uh, is strictly independent of the so social order, uh, but they know who they are in some way that is, that is uh, indelible for them. They are the daughters of the dean. They are the ones uh, divinely ordained to carry on the dean's work, the, the, the prophet-priest of this little hamlet who was their father and who had died some years before. And so they have a sense of who they are which grounds them and makes them less uh, likely to be scandalized by these little social ripples that occur. I, in this regard, I, th I think of a story that Howard Thurman told of his childhood. When Thurman was a young uh, boy growing up in Florida, uh, he, of course, lived in the, in the little black uh, community, but he went to a school which was located such that he had to walk through the white community to get there and get home every day. And as he walked through the white community, uh, not uh, infrequently, he, he and his uh, sister and friends would be, would be taunted by the white kids. And he tells a story about how one day he had that experience and uh, and uh, had really had his feelings hurt and felt uh, and felt terrible about the whole thing and his grandmother noticed it immediately when he came home and so his grandmother got uh, Howard and his sister and he she st stood him up in front of her as she sat the elderly woman sat in her chair and she uh, lectured them and she said I want to tell you something no matter what those white kids out there tell you you're God's children and I thought of that when I thought of what we're, we're dealing with two pieces of fiction here, but if we're using we're using them to deal with life, and uh, and I thought about the sisters. I thought uh, they they are grounded in the sense of who they are. We, from the point of view of a sort of happy-go-lucky 20th century America, we would regard that sense as being uh, as having some confines to it as being narrow but the one blessed thing about it is that it 
it gave them a certain immunity to this whole mimetic business uh, that occurs when we do not have a sense of who we are. Uh, they are living in a world that is really a remnant of an ancient world, which is the world in which the, in which the distinctions are still holding, which has yet to experience what Girard calls the crisis of distinctions. They know who they are, and, and to that extent are, are uh, immune to this to this uh, terrible social melodrama that gets stirred up by people who, whose sense of who they are is, uh, is indebted to the social order almost exclusively. The story begins this way. The peacock was following Mrs. Shortly up the road to the hill where she meant to stand. Moving one behind the other, Mrs. Shortly and the peacock, moving one behind the other, they looked like a complete procession. Her arms were folded, and as she mounted the prominence, she might have been the giant wife of the countryside come out at some sign of danger to see what the trouble was. She stood on two tremendous legs with the grand self-confidence of a mountain and rose up narrowing bulges of granite to two icy blue points of light that pierced forward surveying everything. Now compare that to the two sisters meekly going from from uh, cottage to cottage, bringing their, their little bread and ale soup to the, to the indigent of Berlevoir. She ignored the white afternoon sun, which was creeping behind a ragged, ragged wall of cloud as if it pretended to be an intruder and cast her gaze down, down the red clay road that turned off from the highway. So uh, this, this awesomeness of hers and this fierce, uh, piercing gaze surveying everything, scrutinizing everything, suspicious of everything, involves a, a uh, willful ignoring of certain other things. She was ignoring the white afternoon sun, which was creeping behind the cloud as if it pretended to be an intruder. Now, there are a lot of uh, symbolic echoes going on here, but uh, the, the, uh, we'll see the sun's connection with the peacock throughout the story. It's a, kind of, it's a kind of incarnational linkage here. The peacock is behind her, and the sun is being ignored, and she is glaring at a, at a little social uh, uh, scene that is happening down on the dirt road leading from the highway. So that's... Mrs. Shortly. The procession consists of two figures, Mrs. Shortly and the peacock. Here's the peacock. The peacock stopped just behind her, his tail glittering green, gold, and blue in the sunlight, lifted just enough so that it would not touch the ground. It flowed out on either side like a floating train, and his head on the long, on the long blue reed-like neck was drawn back as if his attention were fixed in the distance on something no one else could see. So here are the two states of consciousness as the story gets underway. Mrs. Shortley's and the Peacock's. And Mrs. Shortley is looking at a black car coming up the road from the highway. And the owner of this farm where Mrs. Shortley and her husband, Chancy, are employed the owner of the farm, Mrs. McIntyre, is going from her house out to where the car has stopped to meet the occupants of the car. And we see the scene through Mrs. Shortley's consciousness. Make it, Mrs. McIntyre had on her largest smile. Notice the verb. She had on her largest <laughs> smile. But Mrs. Shortley, even from her distance, could detect a nervous slide in it. These people who were coming were only hired help, like the Shortleys themselves or the Negroes. Yet here was the owner of the place out to welcome them with her mouth stretched. See, she's very suspicious of what's going on here. And these are the refugees from history. A Polish family uh, fleeing the, the death camps in Poland. Two children... Uh, a husband and wife. 
And you remember in Babette's story, the the uh, the, the bet arrives on the scene thanks to the uh, the uh, pleading of the papist uh, Achille Papin. Well, likewise here, this this uh, this uh, scene is being negotiated by uh, the priest, who in rural the rural South uh, would have been uh, almost as uh, rare a site as a as a papist would have been in Norway. And so he has come to uh, negotiate this. He's the one who has uh, convinced Mrs. McIntyre uh, that this would be the thing to do, to take this family onto her farm as, as uh, uh, workers. So the two children and the, and the mother get out of the car, uh, but it is the man who is the, who's referred to as the displaced person. By the way, it's, it's capitalized. Displaced person is always capitalized in the story. Now, this is a Polish family whose name is Gwizak. Mr. Gwizak steps out of the car, and uh, Mrs. Shortly uh, sees it this way. Then the front door opened, and out stepped the man, the displaced person. He was short and a little sway-backed and wore gold-rimmed spectacles. The first thing that struck Mrs. Shortly as very peculiar was that they looked like other people. She and Mrs. McIntyre had been calling them the gobblehooks all week while they got ready for them. But like Babette, they show up with nothing. They didn't have anything of their own, not a stick of furniture or a sheet or a dish or anything, excuse me, and everything had to be scraped together out of things that Mrs. McIntyre couldn't use anymore herself. So they come just as, as empty-handed as Babette. Now we're inching our way up on the first great... Uh, uh, vision of the uh, of the story, Mrs. McIntyre said to Mrs. Shortly. Mrs. McIntyre had said that after what those people had been through, uh, they should be grateful for anything they could get. She said to think how lucky they were to escape from over there, and come to a place like this. And uh, at that, Mrs. Shortly free associates. Mrs. Shortley recalled a newsreel she had seen once of a small room piled high with bodies of dead naked people all in a heap. Their arms and legs tangled together, a head thrust in here, a head there, a foot, a knee, a part that should have been covered up sticking out, a hand raised clutching nothing. Before you could realize that it was real and take it all into your head, the picture changed and a hollow-sounding voice was saying, Time marches on. Now, at this point, we must pause and remember that her name is Shortly. Uh, time marches on. And as she encounters the displaced person, she has this image in her head. And she thinks it's an image of uh, his condition. Uh, but there it is. We will need to come back to this, or maybe we won't if I repeat it one time and just kind of keep it uh, there for us. Naked people all in a heap, arms, legs tangled together, a head thrust here, a head there, a foot, a knee, a part that should have been covered up, sticking out, and a hand raised, clutching... Nothing. Now that, among other things, would be a marvelous symbol for the crisis of distinctions. Everything has been dismembered. This, this is a kind of general dismemberment. Again, we're inside Mrs. Shortley's head. This was the kind of thing that was happening every day in Europe where they were not as advanced as in this country. And watching from her vantage point, point, Mrs. Shortley had the sudden intuition that the gobblehooks, like rats with typhoid fleas, could have carried all those murderous ways over the water with them directly to this place. Europeans are not as advanced as we are, and this kind of stuff happens all the time over there. But they may have brought it with them. Uh, in, in, a way, in a way, what we're doing today is one long uh, 
analysis of the of the mentality of Mrs. Shortley, because she is a perfect uh, textbook case of the mimetic mind, uh, the mind that uh, lives life looking out of the corner of its eye. But one of the things we need to know about Mrs. Shortley is uh, her her sense of value, and. Uh, we get a piece of that when we when we're told of uh, her relationship to Mrs. McIntyre. Now, here's the social structure on the farm, which is the, where this whole thing takes place. Mrs. McIntyre is the owner, and under Mrs. McIntyre are the Shortleys, and uh, under the Shortleys, supposedly, are the two Negroes who work the place with the Shortleys. And that's that's a it's a pretty strict hierarchical pyramidal uh, structure. Again, we're in the mind of Mrs. Shortly. Mrs. McIntyre had buried one husband and divorced two, and Mrs. Shortly respected her as a person nobody had put anything over on yet. Now that may or may not seem like a non sequitur, uh, but it's worth taking a look at what uh, Flannery O'Connor has done here. She had buried one husband and divorced two, and Mrs. Shortley respected her as a person nobody had put anything over on yet. So the, so the, uh, the measure of a, of, a, of a person, the one who receives the admiration, is someone who is so facile at this living life looking out of the corner of their eye that they've managed to get through life without anybody ever putting anything over on them. And so those who play that game very well are the ones who get the admiration. This is a little bit like Plato's cave, you know. The, the people who played, the, who, who were the best at uh, interpreting the shadows on the wall were the least likely to walk up to the mouth of the cave and take a look at the sunlight. Buried one husband, divorced two, and was a person nobody had ever put anything over on, except, ha-ha, perhaps the shortlies. Mrs. Shortley. Now we go. We go back to Mrs. Shortley. She's she's observing the the first ar- the arrival of the of the of the Polish family, and immediately, as does someone who's caught up in the mimetic thing, everything inspires a comparison. Everything inspires a comparison, because one's own identity is so on the line here. What's it mean for me? How do I compare to that? Constantly. So they have two children, and Mrs. Shortley has two, two girls and an older boy. And she begins to compare immediately. The Polish girl was better looking than either Annie Maud or Sarah May, Mrs. Shortley's two girls going on 15 and 17, but Annie Maud had never got her growth, and Sarah May had a cast in her eye. She compared the foreign boy to her son, H.C., and H.C. came out far ahead. H.C. was 20 years old with her build and eyeglasses. He was going to Bible school now, and when he finished, he was going to start him a church. He had a strong, sweet voice for hymns and could sell anything. Now, just to uh, make a little comparison here, H.C., to get an overall feeling of the scene. Now, remember the two sisters. The two sisters had... uh, only one uh, goal in terms of their practical religious life, and that was to try to carry on and pass on in an, un- in an as untarnished a way as possible what they had received from their father, the prophet. But here we have H.C. Things are in... The, the, the disintegration is, is more advanced. And H.C. is going to Bible school now, and when he's finished, he's going to start him a church. Mrs. Shortley looked at the priest and was reminded that these people did not have an advanced religion. There was no telling what, what all they believed since none of the foolishness had been reformed out of it. Again, she saw the room piled high with bodies. But there's a moment here when suddenly the priest loses all interest in what's going on and because he sees the peacock. And the priest has this connection from now on in this story with the peacock. Mrs. McIntyre says, just another mouse to see. The priest says, when does he raise that splendid tail of his? 
and Mrs. McIntyre says, just when it suits him. There's a little image here of the spirit uh, blowing where it will, see? unpredictable. It just it, it it's a striking enough bird with its tail hanging back, not quite touching the ground. But there are these moments when suddenly it it it, it reveals itself, and then it becomes just a barnyard bird again. You see, so it's a kind of and and the, and the priest right away wants to know. When does that happen? Mrs. McIntyre says, There used to be 20 or 30 of those things on the place, but I've let them die off. I don't like to hear them scream in the middle of the night. It, it, it can provide that kind of revelation. It can also, it can also uh, wake you in the middle of the night. And so Mrs. McIntyre has, has, let, uh, has let them die off. And I imagine that most of us when, when we let them die off, it's because we let them die off not because we're particularly offended by their mo by by their uh, infrequent uh, displays and revelation and epiphanies, but we used to probably let them die off because we don't like the screams in the middle of the night anymore than Mrs. McIntyre does. <laughs> the priest said, "So beautiful, a tale full of suns." Remember the connection now between the sun and the. Peacock. There's a kind of constant uh, reference here. The peacock, quoting from the story, the peacock stood still as if he had just come down from some sun-drenched height to be a vision for them all. And of course, nobody is attending to the vision except for the priest. Mrs. Shortly stood a while longer, reflecting, her unseeing eyes directly in front of the peacock's tail. He had jumped into the tree, and his long tail hung in front of her, full of fierce planets with eyes that were each ringed in green and set against a sun that was gold in one second's light and salmon-colored in the next. That was what was right in front of her face. And she stood there reflecting her unseeing eyes directly in front of the peacock's tail. She might have been looking at a map of the universe, but she didn't notice it any more than she did the spots of sky that cracked the dull green of the tree. She was having an inner vision instead. Semi-conscious acts of, uh, of censorship are having to occur in order to maintain this whole mimetic operation. Larger visions are impinging on us when we are trapped in those little mimetic environments. Larger visions are impinging on us all the while, and we're screening them out because of this focus on the melodrama. So she was there, was, there it was right in front of her, the epiphany, the map of the universe, and she was having an inner vision. She was seeing the 10 million billion of them pushing their way into new places over here, and that is to say the refugees, and herself a giant angel with wings as wide as a house telling the Negroes they would have to find another place. Now at this point in what she's seeing, she still has a fair confidence of her position in the, in the overall order. As all these refugees come over, what it means is that the Negroes will have to be run off. See? It, it, it isn't quite as alarming as it will be shortly, which is that uh, she finds out that she and her husband, Chancy, uh, are in competition with the refugees for, uh, for prominence and finally for position itself on the farm. But in the first instance, and this will, this will be important later when we analyze her, her, her uh, rationalizations, she thinks, well, if it comes to that, all these other people come in here, she'll just turn around like, like a, an angel with wings the size of a house and tell the Negroes they'll have to leave. Mr. Guizak could drive a tractor, use a rotary baler, the si a silage cutter. She bought a silage cutter just because he knew how to use it. The combine, the Letts mill, or any other machine she had on the place. He was an expert mechanic, a carpenter, and a mason. He was thrifty and energetic, and he did not smoke. Mr. Shortly smoked, and Mrs. McIntyre did not like that. 
Mrs. McIntyre sighed with pleasure. At last, she said, I've got somebody I can depend on. For years, I've been fooling with sorry people. Sorry people. Poor white trash and niggers. Mrs. Shortley could listen to this with composure because she knew that if Mrs. McIntyre had considered her trash, she couldn't, they couldn't have talked about trashy people together. <laughs> oh, boy. But she listened to Mrs. McIntyre go on. Mrs. McIntyre had been, this is a speech that Mrs. McIntyre had been giving for years about how she had to put up with all these people. People had come and gone forever uh, working on this farm. But this time the speech didn't end the way it usually did. Mrs. McIntyre ended by saying, this time I'm saved. That man is my salvation. And Mrs. Mac Mrs. McIntyre is using these words uh, <coughs> offhandedly, but Flannery O'Connor is not using them offhandedly. You can be sure of, of that. So as soon as the word salvation and saved Comes, comes into the picture, uh, Mrs. Shortley counters with her religious talk. She says, I would suspicion salvation got from the devil. And Mrs. McIntyre said, what do you mean by that? And Mrs. Shortley only wagged her head and didn't say anything else. I said Mrs. Shortley, it's true of Mrs. McIntyre as well, but I said of Mrs. Shortley that she uh, is easily scandalized and easily scandalizes, tries to scandalize. And there is a, there is a, uh, an impulse here, which, which we, we need to, I think, become more familiar with. And uh, it strikes me that it's, it's a, it's a uh, diminished version of Iago. You know, Iago and Shakespeare's Othello was, um, has this uh, amazing capacity for, uh, uh, for doing the insinuating of the scandal, uh, the the old the, excuse me the New Testament word for it is the diabolos. The diabolos is the one who uh, who uh, creates the uh, it, it literally literally means somebody who throws down a line and and creates a division, a, a fa a, creates factions. So the diabolical work is the work of. Uh, of sowing that kind of discord. And now Mrs. Shortly begins to do that. And then the text says, The fact is, she had never given much thought to the devil, for she felt that religion was essentially for those people who didn't have the brains to avoid evil without it. For people like herself, for people of gumption, it was a social occasion providing the opportunity to sing. I love that. I love the word gumption. You see? Yeah. That's it. <laughs> For people of gumption, <laughs> it was a social occasion providing the opportunity to sing. But if she had ever given it much thought, she would have considered the devil the head of it and God the hanger-on. With the coming of the displaced people, she was obliged to give new thought to a good many things. Like, and she's now going to work Iago-like a little bit on Mrs. McIntyre. She says, you know, I don't think the Guizacs are going to be able to make it on $70 a month for very long. And Ms. McIntyre says, well, I'll, I'll have to give him a raise. He, he saves me money. Which immediately, Mrs. Shortley, what that says to Mrs. Shortley is that Mr. Shortley had never saved her any money. Everything is immediately compared. And so we get her uh, making her, taking her stand. It is no man, Mrs. Shortley said emphatically, that works as hard as Chancey or is as easy with a cow, or is more of a Christian. She folded her arms, and her gaze pierced the distance. And now she's going to try to work on the, the uh, blacks. <coughs> she gets the two, uh, the two Negroes uh, aside, and she says, you colored, you colored people better look out. You know how much you can get for a mule? Nothing, no indeed, the old man said, not one thing, because nobody uses mules anymore. Before it was a tractor, she said, it would be a mule. And before it was a displaced person, it would be a nigger. The time is going to come, she prophesied, when it won't be no more occasion to speak of a nigger. The old man laughed politely. Yes, indeed, he said, ha, ha. <laughs> He's, see, she can't, get she can't scandalize him 
She can't cause him to react. The young one didn't say anything. He only looked sullen. See, she got to him. But when she had gone in the house, he said, Big Belly act like she know everything. Never mind, the old man said. Your place too low for anybody to dispute with you for it. Now that's what the old man has learned, see, and that's why he's he's immune because he's the only one that that is in a position that is not uh, in dispute. He's at the bottom of the social arrangement. The the uh, the first will come last, and the last will come first. And one of the reasons for that is that is that one who is in a situation where he is immune from that whole mimetic confusion is in a position to, to see the tail of the peacock. You know, to live in this... Not that it automatically happens by any stretch of the imagination. Most people who are in humble positions uh, have, have, uh, have had to live in a world of such, of, uh, of such a mimetic entanglement and such conspicuous consumption going on around them that they, that they that they regarded as demeaning and, par and participate in the whole thing. And I'm not trying to romanticize poverty by any means, but I think there is something about uh, understanding, uh, appreciating one's place, so that one doesn't feel immediately have that one has to run out and compete with with other people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. One of the things we need to know about is how the the rationalizations and the myths which justify the sacrificial uh, uh, episode come to be. This is like the physicists trying to figure out how the, how a galaxy forms. You know, uh, how do these things constellate in the first instance? How does the mimetic vortex uh, come into being and and uh, express its? Uh, it, I mean, how is it given articulation? So. Mrs. Shortly now focuses her anxiety on one thing, and that is Chansey, her husband, has a still uh, where he makes liquor up on Mrs. McIntyre's property, and the Negroes have a still someplace else. And, of course, Mrs. McIntyre doesn't know about either one of them, and, uh, and nobody's telling. But now there's this Guizak on the property, and he's all over the place. I mean, he's, he's, he's uh, cutting and bailing and mending and fixing and I mean he's just going wild all over the place no telling when he's going to stumble on this still so her, her anxiety is focused on that but just watch the mind at work that priest she muttered and was silent for a minute then she said in Europe they probably got some different way to make liquor but I reckon they know all the ways they're full of crooked ways they never have advanced or reformed they got the same religion as a thousand years ago. It could only be the devil responsible for that. Always fighting amongst each other, disputing, and then get us into it. Ain't they got us into it twice already? And we ain't got no more sense than to go over there and settle it for them. And then they come on back over here and snoop around and find your still. <laughs> that just That is a masterpiece. It's like a boomerang, you know. It starts out on this great arc, you know, that goes way out in there, and it starts to, to think about Europe and history and uh, conflict and all of that, and it comes back right here to the still, which is what she's really concerned about. But it's the it's it's myth making. It's a it's a it's a grand mythological construct designed to repudiate the one who might find the still and turn them into the owner of the place. She, she and Mrs., Mr. Shortley are, are lying in bed, and she's trying to tell him how bad the situation is. And Mr. Shortley is pretending to be dead. That's his trick. Uh, and Mrs. Shortley says, I'd rather have niggers than them poles. And what's furthermore... I aim to take up for the niggers when the time comes. Now, just listen to that, you see. When she had the vision 
the first vision, which was all of these refugees are going to come, and she was like this great angel which, who would just simply turn and, and with the, you know, the, the waving of her arm, dismiss all the Negroes from the place. They have to leave. All you Negroes will have to leave. No, no compunction about doing that whatsoever. But what she needs now is a noble-sounding posture for her to help her focus this fear and contempt she has for the Polish family. And so it makes a lot more sense to do it on behalf of the Negroes than to do it for the reason she's doing it. What's furthermore, she said, I aim to take up for the niggers when the time comes. When the time comes, she said, I'll stand up for the niggers, and that's that. I ain't going to see that priest drive out all those niggers. Now that's masterful. This is, the, this is the mimetic mind creating its mythology under the cover of which it can carry out its sacrificial ritual. So now what we have is this priest who is, the, who, who is himself a kind of alien in this world and who is just, uh, has enough distinctions like, I mean, he wears a funny collar and and uh, so on and so forth. So he's, he's, a, he's just strange enough to be the object of contempt, a shared object of contempt. So he's set up as the one who's instigating it. And, uh, and now we have somebody... This is the other thing about... The, the presence of the gospel in the, in the cultural environment has made... has created a situation in which the only legitimate position is the position of the victims or the defenders of the victims. Now, this is a very awkward for the sacrificial cult because once that's the case, the sacrificial cult will always have to, will always have to create a mythology which, in which the sacrificers are seen and see themselves as the defenders of the victims or the victims themselves. So notice she says, I'm going to take up for the niggers when the time comes and I'm not going to let the priest run the niggers out. It's a total fabrication, but it creates the mythology which will cover, if, to the extent that everybody can buy into that, nobody will notice that what's actually going on is a, is a sacrificial rite. Mrs. Shortley says that the, uh, again, she says to Mrs. McIntyre that it looks like the poll's not going to stay around for $70 a month, and Mrs. McIntyre says, well, I may have to let some of the help go. And Mrs. Shortley uh, nodded to indicate that she had known this for some time. But it's a point at which the crisis really begins for her. Uh, so let me... Uh, she, has, she talked about Satan. See, the beautiful thing about the New Testament use of two terms for the satanic or the demonic, uh, the, the term diabolos and the term Satan, is that it, it allows us to see, because of the etymology of the two words, it allows us to see two the, the, the uh, two stages. The diabolical stage is the stage in which the, the conflict, the, ten, the uh, tension is created uh, and the divisions are sown. And the satanic, the Satan means the accuser. The Satan is the one who comes in and points his finger and says, he's the one. And polarizes the situation not in terms, the, the diabolos may polarize the situation in terms of this group and that group, but the Satan uh, creates a new polarity, which is unanimity minus one. That's the way Girard puts it. Uh, so that now the, the, the culture is no longer split, it's together, and the polarity is between it and its victim. So you need... So the Diablo sets, the, sets the, the agitations in motion, and the Satan polarizes it and creates community on one hand and a victim on the other. Mrs. Shortley uh, began to imagine... A war of words, English words and Polish words stalking forward and then grappling with each other. Because these, these things always begin with words. In a way, it's wonderful that this is the image because it, it starts with words. The, she saw the Polish words, dirty and all-knowing and unreformed, flinging mud on the clean English words until there was 
excuse me, until everything was equally dirty. This is the crisis of distinction. Suddenly there's no, no distinction. She saw them all piled up in a room, all the dead, dirty words, theirs and hers too, piled up like the naked bodies in the newsreel. She keeps coming back to that image. God save me, she cried silently, from the stinking power of Satan. And she, and she started from that day to read her Bible with new attention. Now, people in, that, in the grip of that kind of mimetic uh, vice should not be put in the same room with the Bible. The Bible is, is the worst document to hand them at that point. There, you know, there, there is some, there's some wisdom in this <laughs> insistence that the Bible be mediated. <laughs> but uh, the, Thomas Merton has a part of a poem which says there are ten... They're ten guns out of work up anger hollow. Don't let Cain into that hollow. Uh, well, it's like that. See. The worst time to pick up the Bible, she picks it up. She poured over the apocalypse and began to quote from the prophets. And before long, she had come to a deeper understanding of her existence. Oh, God save us. <laughs> see? She, she saw plainly that the meaning of the world was a mystery that had been planned, and she was not surprised to suspect that she had a special part in the plan because she was strong. She saw that the Lord God Almighty had created the strong people to do what had to be done, and she felt that she would be ready when she was called. And that is warmed over Frederick Nietzsche and the Third Reich. That's just what this Polish family had been fleeing from. That premise. That God created the strong people to do what had to be done. That is to say, the, the strong people are the unsqueamish. The ones who know that you can't have an omelet without breaking some eggs. See? That's the kind of God she found when she opened her Bible. And then she begins to, to think in biblical categories and talk in biblical categories. For instance, she sees the priest uh, on one of his visits to, the, to Mrs. McIntyre. Here he was, leading foreigners in the hordes to places that were not theirs, to cause disputes, to uproot niggers, and to plant the whore of Babylon in the midst, in the midst of the righteous. So she's beginning to use apocalyptic uh, terms from the apocalypse to assess her own situation. So the story says it was on a Sunday afternoon that she had her vision. The sky folded back in two places like the curtain of a stage and a gigantic figure stood facing her. It was the color of the sun in the early afternoon, white gold. It was of no definite shape, but there were fiery wheels with fierce dark eyes in them, spinning rapidly all around it. She was not able to tell if the figure was going forward or backward because its magnificence was so great. She shut her eyes in order to look at it, and it turned blood red, and the wheels turned white. A voice very resonant said the one word, prophesy. She stood there, tottering slightly but still upright, her eyes shut tight and her fist clenched and her straw hat low on her forehead. The children of wicked nations will be butchered, she cried in a loud voice. Legs where arms should be, foot to face, ear in the palm of hand. Who will remain whole? Who will remain whole? Who? So there's her vision. Caught up in the mimetic vortex, living in that kind of constant mimetic entanglement, uncertain about her, her place in the world, 
having to live her life looking out of the corner of her eye, admiring those people like Mrs. McIntyre who can, who can work their way through several husbands and several other uh, relationships and still have, uh, arrive at a place where nobody's ever pulled anything over on them. Having that as the, as the ob object of admiration, living in that kind of uh, hell, and with a little dose of the Bible thrown in, she has this vision. And the vision is that the children of the wicked nations will be butchered. So it is a sacrificial vision. But notice the, the crisis of distinctions, what Girard calls the crisis of distinctions, which is con continually referred to here in this story as the, as the gas chamber room where all the bodies are piled up with, with legs and arms and elbows and feet sticking out in all directions. And again, we're reminded that her name is Mrs. Shortly. Walking back to the house, she notices that the priest and Mrs. McIntyre are talking. And this is, this is like Shakespeare taking one of those little humorous asides right before the, the, uh, uh, the climax of, of, of something. She decides to duck into the, to the uh, feed house so as not to be seen by the priest and Mrs. McIntyre. On the walls of the feed house are the old calendars advertising uh, uh, calf feed and patent medicines. Quote, One showed a bearded gentleman in a frock coat holding up a bottle, and beneath his feet was the inscription, I have been made regular by this marvelous discovery. Mrs. Shortley had always felt close to this man, as if he were some distinguished person, which excuse me, as if he were some distinguished person she was acquainted with. So here's the calendar with this guy holding up his patent medicine, saying, this marvelous discovery has made me regular. I don't even know how to do justice to that <laughs> image, you see. It's, it's, the, it's the humorous, the little humorous version of the whole problem. And she hears Mrs. McIntyre tell the priest that she's going to have to let the shortlies go. She rushes into her house and begins to take everything out of the drawers and put them in suitcases. She's determined to leave and not be fired. They tied the two iron beds to the top of the car and the two rocking chairs inside the beds and rolled the two mattresses up between the rocking chairs. On top of this, they tied a crate of chickens. They loaded the inside of the car with the old suitcases and boxes, leaving a small space for Annie Maud and Sarah May. The car moved slowly like some overfreighted leaking ark. Where are we going? Mr. Shortley asked for the first time. And this, of course, is what Flannery O'Connor is driving at. That's the question Flannery O'Connor wants, wants to emphasize at the... At at this point in the story. Where are we going? Now remember Mrs. Shortley's original vision. Mrs. Shortley sat with one foot on a packing box so that her knee was pushed into her stomach. Mr. Shortley's elbow was almost under her nose and Sarah May's bare left foot was sticking over the front seat touching her ear. Where are we going? Mr. Shortly repeated. And when she didn't answer again, he turned and looked at her. Fierce heat seemed to be swelling slowly and fully into her face as if it were welling up now for a final assault. She was sitting in an erect place in spite of the fact that one leg was twisted under her and one knee was almost into her neck. But there was a peculiar lack of light in her icy blue eyes. All the vision in them might have been turned around looking inside her. Exactly what was happening when the peacock's tail was hanging in front of her. She suddenly grabbed Mr. Shortley's elbow and Sarah May's foot at the same time and began to tug and pull on them as if she were trying to fit the two extra limbs onto herself. Mr. Shortley began to curse and quickly stopped the car and Sarah May yelled to quit 
but Mrs. Shortley apparently intended to rearrange the whole car at once. She thrashed forward and backward, clutching at everything she could get her hands on and hugging it to herself. Mr. Shortley's head, Sarah May's leg, the cat, a wad of white bedding, her own big moon-like knee. Then, all at once, her fierce expression faded into a look of astonishment, and her grip on what she had loosened. One of her eyes drew near to the other and seemed to collapse quietly, and she was still. Remember in that original vision she had, arms and legs tangled together, a head thrust here, a head there, a foot, a knee, a part that should have been covered up sticking out, and a hand raised, clutching nothing. Then all at once her fierce expression faded into a look of astonishment, and her grip on what she had loosened. The two girls who didn't know what had happened to her began to say, Where are we going, Ma? Where are we going? And that's the question to ask about this whole mimetic operation. Where are we going? And where are we going, to the extent that we participate in that, is the apocalypse. Where are we going, Ma? Where are we going? They thought, the daughters who were asking this question, they thought she was playing a joke and that their father, staring straight ahead at her, was imitating a dead man. They didn't know that she had had a great experience or ever been displaced in the world from all that belonged to her. Notice the word that's now attributed to her, displaced. She has just been displaced. The two girls were frightened by the gray slick road before them, and they kept repeating in higher and higher voices, Where are we going, Ma? Where are we going? While their mother, her huge body rolled back still against the seat, and her eyes like blue painted glass, seemed to contemplate for the first time the tremendous frontiers of her true country. It's like waking up from the soap opera and suddenly realizing the real scope of life. And the power of that soap opera is what this story is all about. This thing we call church, the Greek word is ecclesia, means to be called out. And what it calls us out of is that, is that mimetic vortex that Mrs. Shortley has lived in her whole life. And uh, she comes up out of it at the moment of death. And she has on her face a look of astonishment as she seems to contemplate for the first time the tremendous frontiers of her true country. You have to lose your life in order to find it. And when she lets go of her grip, she for the first time inhabits her true country. But I think a, a plug ought to be made for the sacrament of confirmation. The metaphor that's coming to me is vaccination. That, 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 that's what the sacrament of confirmation is. It, 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 it's a vaccine against the mimetic entanglement. Uh, what we need to find is ways of experiencing and providing the experience for, for uh, the next generation of our, of our fundamental legitimacy. It goes back to Howard Thurman's grandmother catching him at that moment where he was feeling vulnerable because of the social environment and saying to him in no uncertain terms, you're God's children, don't you forget it. See? You, are, you, are, you, you are authorized. You are, you, your own existence is legitimate for what it is, and it, it does not derive its legitimacy from the social order. Because, boy, when we teach, when we, when we learn ourselves and teach our children that our, that our existence derives its legitimacy from the social order, we just create the, the sacrificial setting. There's a critical moment in the story of Babette when Babette brings the supplies in that she's going to use for this meal, this French meal she's preparing, and, there, and suddenly these two uh, timid 
Norwegian sisters see all these bottles of wine, and most notably this huge sea, sea turtle, and they are shocked. And suddenly you feel, you can almost feel the pit of their stomach with them, which is that some horrible transgression is about uh, to be perpetrated on this little village. And they uh, gather their clan together secretly, and they discuss what is happening with their clan. And they say things like, witches' Sabbath. So it has all the markings of a situation that could go in the direction of a sacrificial event. A secret gathering, a kind of uh, lynch mob, the, the witches' Sabbath, and so on. But it isn't. It goes right to the brink, but then it doesn't. They decide that they will partake of the meal, but say nothing about its virtues and so on, and to try to keep the contamination as, as quarantined as they can, but otherwise, otherwise not take sacrificial action. That moment in this story, in Flannery O'Connor's uh, The Displaced Person, takes place, I think, when Mrs. McIntyre, uh, who is now on her farm with uh, the Guizaks, Mr. Guizak is continuing to put the farm in order for her, and the two uh, blacks who have been working for her for some time, satisfied with how things are going, looks out her window one day, and she notices on the road, Mr. Guizak and the young black man, whose name is Sulk, uh, encountering one another, exchanging something. Mr. Guizak gives Sulk something. He looks at it carefully. There's some, some gesturing and, and so on. And uh, Mr. Guizak walks off, and Sulk is standing in the middle of the road looking at this thing in his hand. So Mrs. McIntyre goes down to ask him what that's all about, and he produces this picture of a little girl in her first communion dress. And he says that Mr. Guizak has proposed that he, Sulk, the young black man, help pay for the trip that this girl would make to the United States. She's now 16. This picture was taken some time ago. That if he, Sulk, will help pay for that, uh, that trip to America, that this 16-year-old girl will marry him. He is a black, uneducated black sharecropper. And when Salk tells that to Mrs. McIntyre, she uh, has the same uh, knot in the pit of her stomach that we can imagine the sisters had when they saw the sea turtle and the bottles of wine. Uh, it's as though the fundamental taboo, the last surviving taboo in a society that had been for a hundred years slowly losing its elaborate set of distinctions. The last distinction there was had just been violated in her presence. And she shudders. And the story says there was nothing about her small, stiff figure to indicate that she was shaken, which is Flannery O'Connor's way of saying she was shaken. As soon as she got in the house, she lay down on her bed and shut her eyes and pressed her hand over her heart as if she were trying to keep it in place. So this is the moment when suddenly one feels this primitive sense. It's a very primitive sense. Again, Paul Ricoeur's uh, study of these things in a book called Symbolism of Evil. Very interesting. This most primitive sense of what's wrong is the sense of, of, uh, of contamination. And uh, there is here this sudden uh, revulsion that some, uh, some uh, taboo has been broken in her presence. She's inside, li lying down, trying to keep her heart in place. The story says she, she uh, uttered two or three little dry sounds with her mouth. And then she said, the fateful words, she said, they're all the same. They're all the same. 
Now, if we were building up a glossary of terms to watch out for, that would be a prominent one in it. When people start talking that way, they're all the same. We have to be careful. 